0: If you want to grab your Bibles and turn there, we're going to be camping out in verses 6 through 12. And speaking of the Word, I want to start with a word this morning. I want to start with the word prosperity. Prosperity. It kind of just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Prosperity. It's like, it's like Will Ferrell in Elf. Francisco. <laughs> it just kind of rolls off the tongue. We like that word. That's a word none of us is going to argue about, is it? Right? If I go up to Scott Long and I say, brother, how about a little prosperity? He's not going to say, I don't want to ever hear you say that again. I'm going to wash my mouth out with soap. Don't ever repeat that phrase to me again. Nobody's against prosperity. You know, last week we talked a little bit about uh, the calves, didn't we? And um, after a long drought, they won. They won. And the victory was that much more amazing because it came after a drought. So the prosperity came at the end of rather a long run of non-prosperity, if that's a word, I don't know, and it made it that much more sweeter. The worst thing that could probably, if, if, I'm, if I'm hearing everything correctly, you know, not being the, the sportiest dude in the room, uh, the worst thing that could probably happen to the calves next year is probably a little overconfidence, Right? Kind of, kind of rolling into 2017, thinking they got it all handled, thinking this victory was theirs for the taking, and all they got to do is just sort of, you know, turn up the dial one or two clicks, and they're just on a, they're on a roll. They're on a run now. Probably not the best thing that could happen to them. Probably what would be better for them is to come into the season a little hungry, a little thinking that they need to listen to their coach, that they need to really start training even maybe a little earlier than they did last year, to come in feeling actually underprepared, but ready for the job that lies in front of them. So last week when we dove into Psalm 30, we saw that God did something dramatic for David. He answered David's prayers. David endured through this dark night of suffering that he was experiencing, but we're going to see this week that this newfound freedom that he found, sort of this prosperity that he sort of experienced following his suffering... Um, it turned into forgetfulness for him. That's what happened to him. And he's going to talk about that. And that's really us, isn't it? When you think about yourselves. Now that everything's better, I don't have to be so needy because I don't, I don't like the feeling of that. I don't like being needy. Um, you know, and, and so we, we forget sometimes after God takes us through a season like that. We forget, right? Right? You tend to start thumping your chest about things, right? I I aced these classes. That was me. I got this job. I'm the one that earned this money. I'm on top of the mountain that I climbed up. So now I don't have to be so tethered and attached to God. Like I'm stable now. I've come into some measure of stability. You forget that God doesn't intervene in your life to make you self-sustaining, And we forget that. Maybe the American church has been really bad about telling us the the, the lie of that. That God does not intervene in our life to make us self-sustaining. He intervenes so that you'll know how much you need him to sustain you. That's why he intervenes in our lives. So we're going to see what happened to David here as we dive into Psalm 30. After the heels of going through a dark season, coming out of it, and then what happened after he came out of it. So let's just pick up in verse 6. Psalm 30 verse 6. It says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O God, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So what we're going to see here today is that God, He shakes us up, man. He shakes us up. He takes our lives. He takes our stabilities. And he goes like that. He shakes us. And as he shakes us, he's actually saving us. God shakes us and saves us out of our stability. And so what we see here at the beginning of verse 6 here, is we see David, this guy that had just gone through this dark night, he comes back on the other side. And we see him going in reverse. After everything that God had done for him through that dark night or season of suffering of the soul. We see something happening to him that actually happens to us pretty often in our lives in that we we tend to get to this place with God and then we back up. We back off. We go in reverse and we get overconfident. David got overconfident right here. All of his success, this is a guy that was successful. All of his riches, this was a guy that had some cash. His fame, his health, all this stuff that equaled up and measured up to the level of prosperity that he had, it all brought him to a place where he thought he was unshakable. Man, I got this thing. I got this gig. And what's that song you hear at the gym every morning? You shoot me down, but I won't fall. I am titanium. I mean, that's it's a great song, number one. But number two, great <laughs> chorus. But, um, but, but that's us, isn't it? Like, man, I want to be invincible. I need to be unshakable. I need to know that I can take the hits, that I have enough of a shell, I've built up enough armor in my life that's going to be able to withstand those things that are going to come against me. So when we talk about prosperity, that beautiful word that starts with a P, that we're all drawn to, that we all love, that we all want to have a place within our life, prosperity in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. And, and in fact, it, it actually comes from God. I mean, what, what, is, what does David say right here in verse 6? After, after As for me, I said, in my prosperity. It was, it was a prosperity that God had given him. So prosperity in and of itself isn't bad. It comes from God. It's what it creates in us where the issues lie. Um, it's where God needs to bring us to a place when our prosperity now becomes more about what we've become rather than what he's been doing for us. Remember when I called out Joel Osteen, our boy Joel, when I called out Joel two weeks ago because he preaches what is commonly known as the prosperity gospel. I mean, listen, we need to preach against that, right? We need to preach against that. But let me tell you something about my heart. My my heart doesn't preach against that at all, right? Right? That was a slam against, against J.O. a little bit right there. But you know what that really was? That was really a testimony to my own heart that is drawn to that type of gospel. That's really what it is. My heart wholeheartedly welcomes that theology. I mean, what is the prosperity gospel? Well, it's this. When somebody messes with your money and you get angry... That's the prosperity gospel, right? When the waitress screws up your order and you're outraged because you didn't order those potatoes, you ordered the hash browns, prosperity gospel, right? When your neighbor gets that new car, or in our case, that new like riding like lawnmower if we're in Ashland, and you burn with jealousy, and you're burning with jealousy, right? Prosperity gospel, I mean, whenever you feel cheated, whenever you feel entitled, whenever we get greedy, whenever we're envious, man, that is the prosperity gospel circulating inside our hearts. Deceiving us, right? Deceiving us into believing that this, these are the things that are responsible for my stability and my happiness. So apparently everything God had given David had, had just gone straight to David's head, Now, again, is it it wrong to be prosperous? Because that's the question that you're asking right now when I say that. Is it wrong to be prosperous? It's interesting that that's the question that we ask. We're saying that success is wrong. Is it wrong for me to be prosperous? Well, we want to look at some of the stories in the Bible of people that have become prosperous and what happened when prosperity became their stability. You know, look at a guy like Solomon. I mean, the beginning Solomon had it all right. God comes to him and says, anything you want and it's yours. It's like we have dreams about that kind of encounter with God, right? Just kind of stepping into the bedroom one night right before bed and saying, just name it and it's yours. Solomon says, here's the thing. I'm a young king. I don't know how I don't know how to rule these people. If you could just give me some wisdom and teach me how to rule these people, that'll be good. That'll get me where I need to go. God says, I like your answer, my friend. And he says, besides all of that, besides all the wisdom I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you all the stuff that goes along with being a prosperous king. So God prospers people. He gives people blessings. He gives people material things. He blessed Solomon like no other king in the history of Israel but what God said was, here's the thing, Saul, I'm going to prosper you, but I don't want those things to pull you away from me. What happened was, is they did. Eventually, all those things derailed Solomon. And so here's, here's what's sobering for us, is that all of our self-confidence, all of our self-reliance, all of our self-sufficiency, What's so interesting about those things that we sort of build out of the things that we feel like we're building into and in our prosperity, all of those things will have proven to be illusions after we breathe our last breath, won't they? Because none of it, none of these things can stop death. So what happens is that God in his mercy allows affliction to remind us that we're dust. Dust. So that we return to him before we return to dust. I mean, is there any material possession? Here's my question for you, for me. Is there any material possession that can't be reduced to powder and hauled away and bulldozed into the same ground that we'll someday return to? Do you own one thing that that can't happen to? And yet we think that somehow that provides our stability. How? Powder and dust? It's funny that even the most arrogant, self-confident person in the world has homeowner's insurance, huh? Right? They still have homeowner's insurance because a tornado, a fire, an airplane, a balloon from Balloon Fest dropping down, a kid with access to your electrical socket can turn your home to rubble and ashes in, like, minutes, right? God is saying to David right here, in a sense, follow me here, I'm your homeowner's insurance, brother. Who will you turn to when your body fails? When affliction comes? When suffering comes? Who will you turn to when those... Are you going to turn to your financial planner? When something goes wrong with your health? What are we turning to in those things? In Mark 8, Jesus warned his disciples about... What we're talking about, this sort of level of futility, when he said, it's a famous passage, but he said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, gain everything, gain all the stuff, gain all the prestige, gain all the material possessions, and forfeit his soul? Forfeit the one eternal thing that you possess, your soul, and give it all away for stuff that can become powder and dust. And then he says this For what can a man give in return for his soul? What do you got? I mean, seriously, what do you have? Jesus' definition of gaining was, was losing. He said, actually, if you deny those things that you are naturally drawn to, to build into, to create stabilities around, if you deny those things, if you give up those things and you instead receive me as something that is lasting and stable, That is where you're going to find life and joy. So God, and he just showers David right here with an abundance, believe it or not, of mercy and grace. And you know how he does it? You know what's so interesting? Is that he does it by hiding his face from David. You see what it says there in verse uh, 7? You hid your face and I was dismayed. And that just puts a twist in how we think about God, doesn't it? So hold on, so he hides his face, he sort of removes his presence, he puts me in a place where I'm feeling distant from him because he's actually trying to draw me closer to him? That's not how we normally think of the way God acting, but it's happening right here. David is dismayed, it says. He's afraid, that's what that word means. He's amazed that God is doing that. He's shocked, just like we are when we end up having things around us crumble and we kind of go, oh! He's amazed. He's beat down because of it. And what's interesting about that is we we tend to see two terrifying things happen related to God's presence in the Bible. All right? You following me? We die if we see God's face. So remember when Moses came before the Lord and he said, I just want to see your face. And God said, that's awesome and cute. But if you do, you're going to die. Because nobody sees God and doesn't die. You can't stand in front of that level of holiness and light and still stand. So we die if we see His face, and then there's this other strange thing that happens. We feel like dying if God hides His face from us. Well, well, how, do we, what, how do we meet in the middle with this? Well, what David is experiencing is the instability, the loneliness, the distance that comes when we become afflicted with a measure of sickness and suffering in our lives. Isn't it amazing to you how something like a common cold can knock us off our game? Maybe you're one of those dudes, oh, yeah, I don't care. I just get sick. You know, I work through my flus and, you know, all my, you know, I broke my leg and I never missed a day of work. All right. I mean, you can go sit outside for one minute while I get through this part. But it's amazing how that happens to most of us, right? When we're experiencing health problems, all of a sudden that becomes the only thing that's important to us, isn't it? Right? I mean, man, we're, we just tend to be a little fragile, you know? We're a little fragile, aren't we? We tend to have a brittleness about us, don't we? I mean, when's the last time you stayed home from work because you simply weren't feeling good, right? I mean, that, that's all it takes to lay us out? Not feeling good. I'm on the couch and I need the soup. And I had my wife to like, you know, rush around and get me all these things and help me. And I like the red vines, not the Twizzlers. And, you know, like just put all those demands out on her. Right? Why? Because I got a headache and I need some Kleenex? I mean, that's all it takes to lay me out? Unfortunately. (laughs) Isaiah 40 verse 6 says, All flesh is grass and all beauty is like the flower of of the field. And he goes on to say, it's there and then it's not there. That's how transient it is. I mean, couldn't he have compared it to something a little more robust? Do we have a little more than just grass and flower in us? Actually, we don't. Grass and flowers. Physical and material stability, what what the Bible tells us over and over again, is that it's a myth. It's a myth for us. What's our boy Donald Trump going to do when he wakes up with a debilitating disease? What's he going to do? Watch reruns of The Apprentice? What's he going to do? Is any of that going to matter to one of the most powerful men in the world? David became overconfident. He went in reverse. He became overconfident. And then we see in verse 8, he comes to his senses and he repents. Verse 8, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death, he says, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. David not feeling so mountainous anymore right now. Suffering, it stopped David. It halted David in his tracks. It does the same for us. It suspends us. Sometimes what God does is he even brings us close to death. He brings us close to death to bring us actually back to life a lot of times, which is what it sounds like David is experiencing here, even though we're not told exactly what he's going through. And what, we're, what happens in those moments is we're, we're, in a sense, brought back to the curse of, of the garden, We're brought back to the physical ailments that we're going to experience because of the sin in our life. But we're also, at the same time, which we're going to see here in a minute, we're also brought back to the promise God made to restore all life through his son. So there was a curse at that time and there was a promise. And what happens is when we go through these moments of instability, when we hit those walls, when suffering is debilitating us, we're seeing something very unique happen in our lives. We're seeing the fallout from the curse, and we're also seeing how God is going to act in our life because of the life he provided in Christ. Both things we're going to see the effect of here as David repents. And notice the volume level here with this brother in verses 8 through 10. You know, here's the thing. God hears you whether you pray really quiet or or whether you just shout it from the mountaintops. God's going to hear you. It's not a volume thing. But but God's not displeased with a desperate, loud, riotous prayer, right? You guys should try that sometime if nobody else is in the house, maybe, you know? (laughs) Try that sometime. Go before the Lord. Pray out loud. This is what David does. He says, hear me be merciful. He says, help me. I mean, there's just not a lot of eloquence there, right? I mean, the guy's a poet, not real poetic right there, right? He just kind of lays it out. I mean, this isn't a brother just having some quiet time with his Bible study group in the back of a Denny's, right? I mean, this is a guy that is pouring out. I mean, do you ever unleash a prayer like that? When you're suffering a breakdown or your, or your prayers, they just kind of tend to kind of, kind of fall back into sounding like you're reciting like a grocery list. Is that more what it's like? Again, God hears our grocery list prayers. I'm not saying don't pray like that. But it's significant that he's coming out with so much emotion and exclamation in his prayer. But look at what he's doing here. This is what's unique, all right? And it gives us an idea of what it means to pray to God. David's bargaining with God. Isn't it crazy what he's saying? As if God doesn't know what it would mean to uh, restore David. But he's just basically saying this. He's saying, uh, he's saying, I, I can't praise you if I'm relegated to dust, God. Like if I'm dead, it, I'm no good to you, dead, right? And what's happening right here is David's pain. It's finally revealing something to David about his purpose. And his purpose, your purpose, my purpose, is not to create false stabilities. Our purpose is not to become impenetrable mountains where we just get puffed up and we get proud and we got this thing. It's to be someone who boasts in the God who makes the mountains. And that's what David is coming to right here. I was a mountain, but you relegated me to a forgotten dust heap. And he says, don't forget me, God. Don't forget, please, don't forget me. So what we see is that God hides his face so that we seek his face. It's an interesting method that he has for drawing us back to him. Have you gotten to this place before, God? Psalm 27 talks about seeking God's face. O oh Lord, your face do I seek. I want to know your presence. I want to feel your words working inside of me, showing me your truth. Have you gotten to that place before the Lord? Has God hid His face from you, so to speak, in the way that we understand it here? And what's been your what's been your response in that? Have you have you have you gotten to the place David has gotten to? Have you have you repented? Have you repented of thinking? I shall never be moved? Does your life show that you're somebody of which the phrase, I shall never be moved, would be characteristic of? I mean, I know that, that flies in the face of everything the world tells us we should never do, right? Which is to be strong and stable and independent. Except the world doesn't understand why the world was created, which was to worship God, like we see here. So, When one of God's creatures comes before God and says, Oh Lord, be my helper. We understand that God is pleased to help. He's pleased to help. It says here, he reclothes us. David goes in reverse. He gets overconfident. He repents. And now he gets reclothed. Such a strange way to phrase what God is doing to David. Verses 11 and 12, it says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. So a minute ago, homeboy was on a mountaintop. And God shook him. And now he's in mourning. But he said, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So David describes God as turning him from something, turning his mourning into dancing. He removes the clothing of despair and stability from him. He removes that sackcloth. And again, that's clothing that one would wear during a time of like mourning or repentance, right? And then he reclothes him with the gladness that comes with forgiveness and restoration. It's a really beautiful image. God clothes us with gladness. He makes us happy to know that he was always in control. And it's the appropriate attire to be worn when God reverses the curse. Because that's what he's essentially doing right there. He's reversing that curse that is upon all of us that says, I got this. I'm going to do this. God humbles us and we realize, oh, I've never really had anything. This is ridiculous. Why does he do that? So that David's glory, it says in 12, verse 12, his wholeness might be a glaring testimony to God's faithfulness. Here's the thing. There's just something bigger going on than our prosperity. There's something bigger going on than how prosperous you might become in this life. In all things, listen to this. This is really important. In all things, God is seeking his glory. That just sounds strange, doesn't it? But what does that mean? Is he like an egomaniac? I mean, is he some, just some cosmic guy with like a, you know, a guy that's all about himself and just this massive, ever inflating ego? I mean, what do you mean God is all about his glory? If God is all about his glory, where does that leave us? And can you see the way we think? If God is all about, what about me in that, in that glory? And it just sounds like a foreign thing, except all through the word, we see God being just all about his glory, right? What does that mean? It means that there's something bigger going on than our prosperity, and that is perfectly in line with our joy and our happiness. John Piper famously said this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, All right, so those two things are combined. So my joy and my happiness is the direct result of the amount of glory that God is receiving in my life, right? And then when we are clothed with gladness, when we unsilently sing His praises, when our voices become a never-ending loop of thankfulness for Him, that's when He's getting that glory that brings us joy and gladness. That's the prosperous life That God was restoring to David. You guys hear me on that? Well, three things as we close to consider concerning prosperity, pain, and dancing. Number one is this. Don't mistake prosperity for God's presence. Let me say that again. Don't mistake prosperity for God's presence. God allows pain not because he's against prosperity, but because he's against prosperity making you think you don't need him. So we want to be careful of that. Because prosperity can be a trap. First Corinthians 10 says, "If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall." So be careful. Recognize that Those things that God gives us are just that. They're blessings from Him to be used for Him, for His purposes. They are not the thing that keep us stabilized and support us. So, the question then with that this morning is what is your mountain? What is your mountain of prosperity? What is the thing that makes you say, I shall never be moved? What is that thing? Because we all got those things. We all got those mountains in our lives. Maybe it's, man, I've always been so liked. I've always been somebody that's just been so liked. Never have to worry about anybody coming around the other side and thinking I'm not making them happy or pleasing them. I've always been more like, maybe it's, man, I've always picked things up so easily. Everything I touch just kind of turns to gold. I'm successful. But now something's changed. Maybe it's, I've always had good relationships I just tend to get along with everybody. I'm that only guy in the world that gets along with every member of his family. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's going south. Maybe you're somebody who's just always succeeded at things. Everything you touch turns to success. Maybe you're somebody who has just always been healthy. You see people around you and you're like, I can't relate. I've just always been healthy. I'm like a mountain of health. Maybe you've always had money. Never have to worry about money. It's not a big thing for me. Got everything stacked up. There's really nothing that can happen that's gonna shake that. I'm good to go. Maybe for some of you, my kids have always been great. All right, that's none of you. I don't know why I wrote that. But what happens is you you lean. You lean hard into those gifts, those talents. You think, God must be smiling at me in that area. So all I'll give him some space, right? Because we're good there. We say, God's given me what I need, and it feels so good to not have to need him in that area, right? And then pain. And then pain comes to knock you off one of those mountains that I just described. And with pain comes a lack of presence from God. Because pain is what drives us to understanding what it feels like to be cared for by God. And what that is, that's God restoring your relationship with him. To get you to the place where you say, as for me, I said in my prosperity, God shall never be moved. That's where he's trying to get us. So don't mistake prosperity for God's presence, too. Pain is God's way of bringing you back. It's God's way of bringing you back to him. C.S. Lewis said, "We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to," is what he said. Pain can only be ignored for so long. Like Even, even some of us that just man, have that high tolerance for pain, and, and by that, I mean, like all the women in the room. It can only be ignored for so long. And pain is God's way of reminding us that our prosperity comes from Him. Like, we think, I think, all right, that the worst thing that can happen to me is physical affliction, that I'm gonna lose a measure of comfort. And yet, what's massively significant here, what we're reading here, is that the Christian gets to wrestle and plead with God in their pain. We have somebody we can go to in our pain. We get to wrestle with him, we get to plead with him. We get to we get to we get something to be made known about ourselves that is more severe than our pain because of our pain. It's the grace and mercy of God in our lives. We get to go before the great physician we get to say, God, help me, because this hurts. And we know that he hears us. Everybody's going to experience pain. I hate even saying that. When I look at some of you, I already know the pain that some of you have experienced, and I don't know some of the pain some of you are going to experience, and I don't know the pain I'm going to experience. But pain for the Christian, it leads somewhere right? It's not a dead end road, nor is it, a, nor is it a, a trail that goes on and on with no end. It leads to God's presence. We are driven to God in our pain. Finally, we plead for him. He listens. And then your mourning, that time of mourning, it's turned. It's turned. It's reversed. And it turns into dancing. So God, pain is God's way of bringing you back to God. And this dancing reminds us of our future. Now, I'm going to be honest, man. Not a dancer. Not a dancer. No plans to attend auditions for so you think you can dance. Like, I got nothing for that, right? Not a dancing dude standing before you. But dancing represents something here. And we look at David, right? And we shudder to be in the place that he's in. But David eventually danced. There was a reversal David was restored back into God's presence. And he responded. He responded with a joyful, emotional, and jubilant heart. What dancing implies is that there's going to be a celebration someday in our lives. It implies a God who has a particular and final destination for us in our pain. And you know how we know this? Because of Jesus. This is how we know this. We know this because of Christ. There's no greater picture of God turning mourning into dancing than the cross and the resurrection. It's the hope. God hid his face, didn't he, from his son. Jesus was forsaken by his father. God raised David from the pit here. God raised his son from the tomb. You know what the result is in that? The result is that every word we sing, every word of thankfulness, we offer back to him as a testimony to his glory and his provision and his stability. The disciples, they mourned over Jesus, didn't they? Until he was raised. And you know what? Never once do you see this type of mourning return to any of the disciples who saw Jesus alive. That doesn't mean they never mourned. That doesn't mean they didn't mourn over loss, over pain. They did. But those were the light and momentary times of mourning because a weight of glory could now be seen in the flesh, Jesus Christ. The presence of God could be felt and known when we're feeling that measure of instability because of Jesus Christ Psalm 63 says, Your steadfast love is better than life. The love of the Father is better than life. Better than what life? What does he mean when he says life? Better than what? I like life. Better than what life? The good life? I don't know what that is. The hard life? What life? Better than life at its best, And it's most bitter as we know it. God's steadfast love is better than that because it extends into a future where God gets all the glory and our joy and our stability in that joy will be never ceasing. What is the mountain that you are on today that you need to go before the Lord and pray, pray that he would reveal to you, pull you down from, maybe bring you into a season of mourning, and then allow you to see the hope and the joy and the dancing that will come and be created in your heart because he has now become your everything. And the love of the Father now has become the place or an ever-increasing joy will continue to take you on a road that leads to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I don't even know what to pray about this. I know that I have my own mountains that I stand on, that I think are stable, and they're not I know that I'm so drawn to things that can become powder and dust in a moment. Lord, we don't want to be blinded by these things. Lord, we want you to turn our mourning into dancing. We want to experience that ever-increasing, that ever-exceeding joy that comes from knowing that you have come, you have intervened into our lives so that we can see you as the one who holds all the pieces together. Lord, let us see that today as we go home, as we meditate on this, as we think about this, as you've spoken to us through your word. Open up our mind and our heart to receive these great truths because you are good and you have allowed us to be in this place to show us just how good you are. So Lord, give us the heart to receive, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand.